You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Hello. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Severa Davis. I'm Director of Design and Challenges here at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's special lunchtime talk, the first of our very exciting 2016 season. So we hope to welcome you again here um, throughout the year for more events like this. It's my great pleasure to introduce this afternoon's fantastic speaker, Caroline Webb. She's here to talk to us today about her new book, which I've just been informed has come out today. So this is a very special, special event. Um, And that book is called How to Have a Good Day. So she'll be speaking to us about that. Caroline is Chief Executive of Seven Shift, an advisory firm that shows clients how to use insights from behavioral science to improve their professional lives. The common thread through her career, however, has been her strong interest in what it takes for people to achieve extraordinary things. She first worked as an economist in the public sector in the 1990s, where her work ranged from economic forecasting to institution building in post-communist Europe. She then shifted her focus from national policymaking to what makes organizations and individuals effective in their work, and she joined McKinsey and Company in 2000. She's much sought after around the world for her coaching advice, and we're very very lucky and um, delighted to have her here today to give us essentially a free session. Um, So here's hoping that this will set us off on a good start to 2016. Please join me in welcoming Caroline to the stage. Thank you for that lovely introduction. It is a pleasure to be here on Publication Day. As you can imagine, it's a special day. Uh, But I have to start by admitting that not every day of mine is a good day. I know I should be taken off stage immediately for saying that. But um, actually, as I stand here in heels in front of you, I have a vivid memory of one particular day. It was early in my career at McKinsey, And it was my first shot at presenting to the board. And so this was quite exciting. Also, I felt quite nervous. But I knew I wanted to project gravitas, presence. And so I was mostly doing this by striding about as boldly as I could. And in my mind, at least, I was owning the room. I'd even thought ahead and looked down and checked that the cables weren't going to trip me up. What happened next, I had not expected or planned for, though, which was, as I was taking an especially bold step into the middle of the room, I heard this crack. Yeah, and some of you will know what happened then. (laughs) And it turns out that it is possible for a heel to completely shear off your shoe. And then, as I was lying on the ground... (laughs) It turns out that it was pretty impossible to project any further (laughs) gravitas or presence. So there are days like that. There are days when you have wardrobe malfunctions, technology glitches, difficult deadlines, difficult colleagues, heavy workloads. And there are things that we can't control. But I'm interested in a philosophy which I call realistic optimism, which is to say not to pretend that everything is amazing, and that if you just say everything is awesome enough, that it will be. But to say, let's acknowledge the constraints, and then let's look for the wiggle room within and around those constraints. And for me, 
behavioural science has always been the toolbox that I've turned to for that. Because insights into how the brain works and insights into how we and why we think, feel and behave the way we do, coming out of the more behavioural corners of economics, psychology and neuroscience, well, this is a trove. Because if we understand just a little about those things, it gives us so much more control over things that actually seem quite random and that we assume are random. I'm going to tell three stories today about things that seem fixed, that you have to just roll with and accept, but where science can give us a little helping hand. First is reality, just starting with a small one. (laughs) The second is time, how do you get more time in your day? And the third is how do you boost your intelligence, something which we also think is rather fixed. Now, it may be that that's certainly nothing that you need, of course, to boost your intelligence, very intelligent audience here. It might be useful for someone else in your family or friends circle. (laughs) Who knows? So, um, let me start by talking about reality. I've already told you about a day that reality didn't serve me all that well. Let me tell you about another day. I was a bit further on in my career at McKinsey at that point. I was a partner. But even as a partner at McKinsey, sometimes you end up doing things that you're not excited about doing. And I had been asked to join a project, which I was definitely not excited about joining. And it was a large-scale corporate change project, which was great, great work. But by that time, I knew myself well enough to know that the work that I really loved was a bit more intimate in scale. I like working with teams and boards and individuals. I like that sense of immediate feedback. And so (laughs) I wasn't very happy about joining it. I was working alongside a guy called Lucas. We'll call him Lucas. (laughs) Um, And if you want a mental picture, picture a wiry, tall, energetic, German, well-dressed guy, very excited about the project. And the day in question was the first day that we were meeting the clients. I turned up, not in a great mood, And it was even worse once I walked into the room where we were meeting the clients. It turned out to be a video conference room. So the clients weren't actually even there in person. They were there on screen. And the room was long, thin, dark, darker than this, (laughs) lower ceilings, much lower ceilings than this. The sort of room that just made my heart sink immediately. I walked in, sat down, we did the meeting. It was as bad as I feared, honestly, you know. Misunderstandings, frowns, people interrupting each other. It was what it was. And meanwhile, of course, Lucas was just banging through the deck of paper, really powering through. And, you know, we had, it's fair to say, not a great meeting. I came out and I felt so worried about this start that we'd had with the clients that I thought I really needed to sit down and talk to Lucas. I mean, after all, you know, I was there to kind of be a a real friend to him in the project. And so I thought this was being a good citizen, to talk to him about how the meeting had gone. So there we were. We were sitting in my office. I can still picture it. And I was telling him about all the things I thought were terrible about the meeting. He was looking at me like I was a crazy person absolutely incredulous. He had literally no recollection of the things that I was talking about. 
But then, perhaps more interestingly, he told me about all sorts of things that he had noticed, that I hadn't noticed. So the fact that we made a lot of progress and people were happy with that. He actually reminded me that there were several points where people laughed. I kind of remembered as he said it, but it was on the edge of my consciousness. So what was going on? It was as if we'd been in completely different meetings. Completely different meetings. Why had he had such a different experience to me? And of particular interest to me, why had he enjoyed it so much more? (laughs) And this is where understanding the brain really helps. We've got uh, amazing brains. Uh, They can do all sorts of things. They can do sums. They can read emotions of other people. They can even tell jokes if they're connected to a loud enough mouth. But there are constraints on what they can do. There are limitations. So our conscious brain can actually only process a portion of what's around us at any given time. We don't know that because our unconscious brain is filtering out a lot of stuff that doesn't seem important enough to bring to the attention of the conscious brain. So we think we're experiencing a completely objective version of reality. I mean, we're smart people. Of course we know what's going on. But the truth is that we're actually all experiencing an edited, subjective version of reality all the time. So what you remember about what I'm saying won't be the same as what you remember. And what you see won't be the same as what you see. But then, of course, the next question is, well, what determines what gets filtered in and what gets filtered out? Because that's where, that's where you know, the rubber hits the road. And the answer is anything that's top of mind. So our brain says, what is top of mind for you, Caroline? Oh, okay, then I'll look for anything that matches that. And one of my favorite studies in this area um, is about a group of radiologists, and this was a study done at Harvard. They had a stack of lung scans to go through. This is their job. They look for abnormalities in these kinds of scans. If you've had an X-ray ever, you'll know that someone like this was looking at your X-ray to see exactly what you'd done to yourself. So these guys were looking through lung scans. In the last lung scan in the pile, there was a gorilla printed inside the lung. How many of the radiologists do you think saw the gorilla? Whatever number you have in mind, it's probably even worse than you might think. 83% of the radiologists did not see the gorilla. Even though eye-tracking devices showed they looked straight at it. And even though the size of the gorilla was 44 times the size of the average lung nodule. Why did they not see it? Because it wasn't top of mind for them. They hadn't got that as an aim to find a gorilla, so they didn't see it. Their unconscious brain said... That's not a priority. The same is true of attitudes. If we go into a situation in a certain mood, our brain will look for things that fit our mood. Same is true of assumptions. If we go in with a certain set of expectations, our brain will look for evidence that confirms that. Some of you may have heard of confirmation bias. This is what we're talking about. So this selective attention explains why you can walk into a meeting in a foul mood and everything confirms exactly what you were expecting. It explains why you can get out of bed on the wrong side and see everyone being a jerk. 
it actually also explains why you can walk down a street you've walked down a million times and see some building or some piece of architecture you'd never noticed before or come out of a movie with your other half and just have an apparently different experience seeing a different film. So massive opportunity here because if we're a bit more deliberate in deciding what we want to have top of mind, going into a day, going into conversation, going into a meeting, especially the ones that promise to be a little bit difficult, we can actually shape the reality that we experience. Kind of interesting. So I have a little process that I call setting intentions, which I use regularly. And it goes like this. It simply has me say, Caroline, what really matters here? Therefore, what's your real aim? Caroline, where's your attitude and your assumptions? Just checking in with that, because you know it's going to shape what you experience. Oh, and if it's not serving you and it's a bit negative, then could you challenge that or park it? And then where do you actually want to put your attention? So you'll notice there are some A's there. It helps me remember. Aims, attitude, assumptions, attention. And honestly, I've never had a meeting quite as bad as one with Lucas ever since, because even if it is going south and I'm realising that this is a terrible meeting, I can call myself in the middle and say, hang on, OK, what, do you, what, what really matters now? And sometimes the aim is, OK, well, maybe I just need to really listen to what's going on. Maybe the aim is, maybe I can learn from what's going on. Either way, it always resets what I then experience in the second half. So that's the first thing, shaping your reality. It can be used even when you're in a bad mood wandering down the street, by the way. Just decide to notice three good things, then that's what's top of mind for you, then you see more good things. Reality. Now, let's talk about time. How do you get more time in the day? Uh, I know two ways to do this. One is, I've seen a lot of science fiction movies in the last couple of years. One is uh, definitely to go to the edge of a black hole. If you're sitting on the edge of a black hole, apparently time slows right down. Difficult on the average day, (laughs) at work especially, you know, on a Saturday maybe. But uh, So what can we do? What's the second opportunity for getting more time in your day? And that's uh, where I major. I'm going to explain by asking you to do a small exercise. Don't worry, you don't have to get up. I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you're going to do exactly the same, as fast as you can, and with some energy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Go. Excellent. Nice and fast. Love it. Now, I'd like you to do the same with letters. So you say A, B, C, D, F, G, on my mark. Go. Excellent. Very high-performance audience. Now, I'd like you to do something which combines the two. I'd like you to say A1, B2, C3, D4. What? (laughs) I'd like you to do it as fast as you can. Go. Come on. (laughs) Some of you, you just gave up. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to ask some obvious questions now, so bear with me. Which was quicker, doing them one at a time or doing them together? One at a time. Um, Did you make more mistakes when you were doing it one at a time or doing it together, mixed up? Mixed up, yeah. And there we are. So here's the thing. Our brain, as well as being 
only able to consciously process a certain amount of reality at any given time, can only do one thing at a time. Our conscious brain can only do one thing at a time. But my goodness, when you think about our modern lives, multitasking is what we're all doing to get through the day with all of the emails and the messages. We're on our phone while we're talking to a colleague, while we're browsing a website. And when we think we're multitasking, what our poor single-tasking brain is actually doing is switching its attention from email to website to person to when's lunch. In the same way as you were switching from letter to number to letter to number, you're losing some time and mental energy in that switch. So no wonder, then, that multitasking has been shown to make you, call, make, you make between two and four times as many mistakes and to slow you down even more beyond that. So you're slower and you're more error-prone when you multitask. So the upshot for us is pretty fantastic. It means that we can get a quick hit to our productivity. We can effectively make the day go further if we do more single-tasking, if we let our brain work in a way that it actually wants to work, especially for the things that are actually really important tasks where the last thing we want to do is be slow or make, make mistakes. I, I've been thinking about this for quite a long time. I wrote an article about it a long time ago and um, even did a couple of radio interviews on, on the topic, the importance of single-tasking versus multitasking. So you would have hoped that I walked the talk, and I did. I did. I had a few things in my kit bag that I like to do. So... I liked to figure out the most important task in the day and put my phone on airplane mode for that time. That worked pretty well. I had a pair of noise-cancelling headphones that I wore, which was great for cutting out ambient noise. It also signalled to everybody that I was trying to concentrate, which is to the point where I actually, even when the battery ran out, would still keep them on. <laughs> I also... You know, occasionally took myself away from my computer to go and sit and concentrate and just think without the distractions of the computer. I have to say that I had to raise my game, however, when I wrote the book because there was much less structure in my day. And there was much more opportunity to just end up browsing and checking messages and so on. So I really had to, <laughs> I had to take my game up a notch in terms of single-tasking. One of the things that helped most was I got myself a timer that I put on my desk to count down the number of minutes that I was able to stay offline, which really helped because when it got to the bottom, when it got to zero, I got a little beep. And it kind of competed a little bit with the thrill of getting a, a ping or a blinking light on your phone because the brain likes rewards, and we're very social creatures, so we see someone wants to get hold of us, and we think, someone wants me. (laughs) And that little beeping noise on the timer competed just a little bit with that. That really helped. So, single-tasking magically gives you back time in the day. Look for a chance to do it wherever you can. Be kind to yourself. Start small. The timer was, first of all, set at five minutes, I'll be honest after I'd been in a corporate environment for a little while. I had to build it up. I managed to get it to 90. (laughs) 
And then I realised that was too long for anyone to deal with, so I put it back to 45. But, you know, it was, um, it was really great to experiment with what worked for me. And you, hopefully, might do the same. So, time. You've got shifted reality, you've got more time in the day. Let's talk about your intelligence, which, as I say, is already pretty high. So, what more can we do to boost our intelligence? Well, you all know that there are days when you are firing on all cylinders and days when you're not. So... I remember a day when I was getting qualified to be a coach. I was on this course. And it was a strange mix of bittersweet because I was doing the course because I was working a lot with senior teams and I thought, I thought it was really wise for me to actually get a certification to make sure that I wasn't doing anything dangerous with these people, you know, not damaging their psyches in any lasting manner. I thought it was good to actually get a proper coaching qualification. And I did it just as an add-on to my work, but then I loved it. I loved it so much. I want to be a coach. But I was a partner at McKinsey, and McKinsey's not a coaching firm. But I want to be a coach. But I like McKinsey. I like my friends. It's one of, I've been there years. I want to be a coach. And I was really stuck with this career dilemma. I was really worried that I was going to have to quit, but I didn't really want to. And when you're doing a course, like a coaching course, the idea is that you practice on each other so that you get better at, obviously, improving the way that someone else is feeling and thinking. And so I was sitting with a woman named Jill, who was helping to develop her skills by coaching me on a real topic. So I thought, well, you know, this is the real topic in my life right now. I was going on about how it wasn't, you know, I didn't see what I was going to do, I was going to have to quit. And then she said, okay, Caroline, now, let's set that aside for a moment. Tell me what the ideal situation is. And at first I was still, if I knew the ideal, I can't get to the ideal, the ideal doesn't exist. And she said, no, no, just, just tell me what the ideal actually is. Which the ideal was obviously to be a, a coach at McKinsey. I explained what I thought that might look like. And then she said, well, what's the first step towards that? I, I said, oh, well, it's obviously to tell everybody that that's what I want to do. Because who knows, there might be opportunities that come up. It seems blindingly obvious, and I know you're looking at me saying, what, why, why didn't I think of that before? The reason I didn't think of it before was because when your brain senses any kind of threat, it puts you on the defensive. Some of you might have heard of the phrase fight or flight. Yeah? So we have this deeply instinctive reaction to anything that hits us as a threat. We either fight, which might be snap, or it might be flight, which is keep our head down or freeze, actually, and wait and see what's going on. So we have this instinctive reaction when we're feeling defensive against any kind of threat. And the two things you need to know about this are that, first of all, it takes almost nothing to trigger this reaction. Even a a frowning face can do it. Certainly a difficult task where it's not clear what the answer is. Second thing you need to know is that when you're in defensive mode, your brain is not putting as much energy into the conscious, clever, reasoning part of your brain. It's diverting energy towards keeping you safe. You can see this on brain scans, that there's less activation in the prefrontal cortex when people are feeling even mildly stressed. So, why was I suddenly able to see the answer or see a way forward? 
when Jill said, yeah, but what's the ideal, Caroline? Now, how do you get there? It's because she was taking me out of a defensive space and putting me into what I call discovery mode, you know, where you're actually you're thinking about what the ideal might be and you're thinking about how to get there. Or you're thinking about when have we succeeded in this in the past and how do, what do we learn from that and how do we apply that to this task now. It doesn't mean you don't think about the problems. But if you can do it when you're not having your brain on defensive mode, then you're able to access more of your full intelligence. You can't actually make yourself more intelligent, really, than you are um, at the best of times. But you can certainly put yourself into a place where you're as smart as you know you can be. So there we go. We've got shifting your reality. We've got getting yourself a bit more time in the day. And we've got boosting your intelligence so that you can be your fullest, most brilliant self when you're faced with tasks that are eluding you. I think that that's a pretty good recipe for a good day. Thank you. Great. Um, thank you, Caroline, for that. She made it sound very easy. That's what um, I'm sitting here thinking. And I, think, I guess the first question would be, this is my question, and I'm imagining a lot of people in the audience as well are thinking, um, that did sound quite easy. And actually, a lot of us feel like we are not in control of our working lives and our bosses demand multitasking. Mm-hmm. And other things. So, how? Um, and I'm sure that's detailed more in the book. But you know, so how, what do you do when um, you feel like you want to be more in control, but the, the circumstances around you are not allowing you to take back that control? Well, I think you're spot on that that is the theme of the book, which yeah. is to say, going back to that phrase, realistic optimism. All all of those challenges do exist. I mean, we we. Most of us do feel we've got too much to do at any given time. Most of us do feel that we've got a few difficult people in our lives. So I'm, I'm interested in what you can do, even if you have those things going on. So the example of setting intentions, for example, you know, that's something that you can do in 10 seconds as you walk into a conversation with someone that you know might be a bit difficult. You can check your assumptions about this person being a jerk knowing that if you go in with that top of mind, you will see everything that confirms that they are indeed a jerk. So I'm interested always in what are the smallest things, the very smallest things you can do that are so simple to build into your everyday routine that it feels easy in a way that a lot of self-help advice feels hard because there's so much that you need to do. So that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to do, yeah. is to find these tiny, tiny, tiny changes that you can s- slip into your day. Yeah. And before I open it up to the audience, my other question is really around the role of gratitude and sort of mm. being thankful. And I think you've mentioned this with and something that came up a lot over the holidays, and there yeah. were billboards about um, being thankful for three things in a day. And yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And there's, a, there's a guy called Martin Zelligman who... Some of you may have heard of. He was, uh, he's a psychologist who was head of the American Psychological Association, and previously his work had focused on the field of learned helplessness. And he decided that psychology needed to focus a little bit more on 
how people could be at their best rather than at their worst. And so when he took the, he took the job as head of the APA, he said, let's focus more on what are the causes of thriving and well-being and the high performance. And that's the positive psychology badge that you may have, you may have heard of. So he's done a lot of research in this field. So, and he, uh, he's on record as saying that the single biggest momentary increase in well-being comes from deciding to, to, express, to, to do something kind for someone else. Other research that he's done, absolutely, he was one of the key people in the early wave of research. One of the most powerful things you can do is to show some gratitude, to, to check in with yourself and say, what am I most grateful for? So this is a very uplifting message. And it goes back to the fact that we're social creatures, that it helps us feel connected with the world. And I think also on the uh, giving as well as the gratitude, it makes you feel there's some kind of abundance, you know, that you, are, that you have enough to give and that you're getting something in return from the world. So I don't tend to... I, t I like to use scientific language as much as I can, but I think that that is a deeply human and uplifting message that comes out of this very hard and rigorous research. So I think that's great. Very quick boost. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, we'd now like to open up to the audience. I see one at the back there. Uh, Alec Robertson Fellow. Um, I multitask, and I don't like single-tasking, and one reason for that is... I like my brain to incubate because I think it works better if I do a bit, let it sort itself out, and then do a bit later. Have you any comment on that kind yeah. of strategy? Um, you're right. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that when you step away from a task, um, there's an awful lot of encoding and consolidation that goes on in the brain, which means that you return to the task with often fresh insight. So that's the kind of what I call the wisdom of the shower moment, um, I, have a, I have a sticky pad in my... a waterproof sticky pad in my shower. <laughs> because those moments when you're sort of actually really taking yourself out of the fray can often be the moments where you get the insight. So I totally agree. I think that the, that's different, though, to being constantly online, juggling, going from one thing to the next. I think that the research supports the idea of a really conscious stepping back to focus on something else. And as you say, giving your, chance, your brain a chance to incubate is a good word. And then stepping back. <laughs> stepping away and stepping back, rather than... Which will mean that you're taking more time. Um, and also the evidence suggests making yourself a tiny bit more frazzled in the process, which the research also suggests isn't great for insight. So, yeah. Thank you for the question. Uh, the received wisdom seems to say that women are better at multitasking than men. <laughs> at least my wife tells me that. Yeah. Is there anything scientific in that? No, not really. <laughs> no. I, I'm, so there, there is some really interesting research on, you know, are, is there, are there any exceptions to this? Because, I mean, everybody, when you're told that your brain doesn't multitask, you're like, yeah, I know, but mine does. Um, <laughs> so... There's a very small number of people out there who are what's known as supertaskers. I, I almost don't want to say that because the moment I say that, you're thinking, oh, I might be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a really, really small proportion of people. Um, what other research suggests is that the more 
the more you multitask, the less good you are at focusing and achieve and, and also, the more that you multitask, the more confident you are you, you can multitask, and the more confident you are at multitasking, the worse you are at it. I love this. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic. These guys, these researchers saying, how confident are you that you're an amazing multitasker? And then they come bottom in this test of being able to juggle. I think possibly because they've lost the ability to, to actually focus on anything for any length of time. So, yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> Where do you think the ability to prioritise comes into having a good day? I think it's at the heart of setting intentions, actually. I think that's where it starts. I mean, so many of us roll from one meeting or commitment to the next through the day, don't we? What's next? Okay, there I go into it. We think about setting priorities as writing a to-do list. Most of us have a to-do list. But we don't do the stepping back, which is to say, okay, what really matters to us today? And that's one of the many reasons that we end up with those lists at the bottom, um, those items at the bottom of the to-do list, which we know are important, and yet somehow the urgent has crowded out the important again for another day. But yes, intentions, I think, can help not only with the way that you perceive reality, but also simply by keeping you on track at any given point, saying, what really matters most now? And therefore, where, what do, I, where do I want to put my attention Hi there. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about your process. Um, you've referred to science quite a bit there. How did you pick out relevant research and think about how you could apply it to everyday life? Mm, good question. Um, well, I mean, my background was as an economist. And the reason I became an economist was because I, I thought economics was the study of human potential in a way. You know, how, how can you help uh, a country, as I started out with, um, be at its best, you know, perform at its best? Um, in the, in, as the years passed, I realised that I wasn't getting as much of the psychological, um, uh, more people-focused um, side of the, the subject, uh, as much of that as I wanted. Um, and so then that's when I went to McKinsey to focus on organisational behaviour. And I found just, honestly, reading an enormous amount, cultivating relationships with people in those uh, disciplines in order that I could really push my thinking, um, doing a couple of courses to also give myself a bit of a structure for the you know, autodidact in, my, in me. Um, and also there are lots of fantastic places um, that are curating great content, like British Psychological Society, the BPS, and its um, counterpart in the US, the APS. Amazing collectors of fantastic research. And then, of course, there's the question of, well, how do you make it practical? And really, that came from my clients, who were so desperate for a, a kind of reasoned, structured way of thinking about behavioral change. There's a lot that's out there that's quite arm-wavy. And were, many of them were really very skeptical of coaching and uh, behavioral work. And I found that by explaining a little bit of really just a very little bit of, uh, of, of how the brain works and why we think and feel uh, as we do, it, it would open their eyes and open their minds to the possibility of doing something different. So the more I saw the power of that, the more I, I worked to um, translate all of my, my reading, my downtime reading, into practical exercises for people. Um, so that was the, that was the journey. 
Um, it's, it's a question about, I, I think you have some really good insights into how to manage your phone and your computer and all those things, but how do you actually manage the people around you, which is not just <laughs> yes. the people at work, yes. I think, is, is our Absolutely. experience. It's your families, it's whatever you do on a voluntary basis. It all seems to be part of those distractions and the things that force me to multitask, even if I know that I perform better if I don't. Um, when I just realised that I've forgotten to buy the dog food or something. How do you manage your, your whole life and not just, just your work life? Which I'm does not sure how people. long we've got, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that's something that's increased also. In, you're, you're expected to be available for everyone, not just your mm. work colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. Let's yeah. take the gentleman in the front. Yeah. And, did you have a question? Yes. Yeah. And then if you can answer those two together, please. Thanks. Caroline, thank you for a lovely talk. Uh, mindfulness is one way to... Uh, focus, learn, learn to uh, focus your mind, open your awareness, and so forth. Um, how have you found that helpful in managing the amygdala hijack, I think, is what you were talking about, getting out of creative mode and in, into defensive mode? Okay, thank you. There is a whole chunk of the book which is devoted to interactions with others, so I've got to say, I hear you. I mean, obviously, when you think about what makes it for a bad day, it almost always involves someone else. It's very rarely just you sitting in a bubble, right? <laughs> um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are two different things in what I heard you say. So one is on the multitasking, you know, the challenge is, of course, we're in demand and we don't want to cut ourselves off from everybody else. Um, I think I, I would not underestimate the power of being clear when you're available and when you're not. And most of us don't, don't do that. Most of us, you know, we might set a, a vacation autoresponder on our email, but we don't generally say, I blitz my email twice or three times a day. I don't, we don't often put autoresponders on saying, I'm out of the office for the next couple of hours, or I'm doing this, uh, I, I'm going offline to do this or that. Um, Adam Brandt, the uh, Wharton professor that some of you may have heard of, wrote Give and Take, he goes even further than I do and uh, puts an out-of-office notifier on his, um, uh, on, it, on his email saying that I'm out of the office for three days when he's working on a paper. And people see him <laughs> and say, you're not out of the office. <laughs> he's just setting clear expectations about when he's there and when he's not. So I've seen people get huge benefit from just being a bit bolder and clearer about that. And certainly I have too. Um, but the broader question of how you kind of help other people be at their best, I think the more that you can use some of the techniques that help you be at your best, for example, when people are being a bit antsy to say, okay, what does the ideal look like and what's the first step toward getting there? It's a very good way of dropping tension in a difficult meeting or difficult conversation. Thinking to yourself, what could possibly be the story that's explaining this bad behavior um, is a way of reducing tension in yourself. Um, it's also a way of combating something known as uh, fundamental attribution error, where we assume that bad behavior in other people is down to their having bad character rather than something bad having happened to them. Soon as you start to think, well, maybe this person's cat has died, and that's why they're behaving in a really difficult way, you reduce your own tension, but you also, of course, improve the interaction. So there's all sorts of things that you can do, but everything that you do for yourself will help the other person too. And then mindfulness. Yes, um, there is plenty in the book on mindfulness. One of the things that I 
focus on, though, is I feel like, you know, there are lots of courses out there which are eight-week mindfulness training courses, which people find they want to do, but then it feels like it takes too much time. So over the past few years, I've been more and more interested in every study that shows that smaller and smaller chunks of mindfulness have an impact on your ability to stay centered and calm when faced with challenges, on your ability to, to sharpen your analytical thinking, all of these benefits, a laundry list of benefits that mindfulness has been shown to deliver. How little do you have to do to get some of those benefits? And it's fascinating and really quite uplifting. Uh, there are studies showing that as, much, as little as five minutes can make a difference. Mm. I've worked a lot with people on mindfulness moments, which is essentially just helping them in the moment when they notice that they're stressed and, the, and the, the tension is rising, just to get better at noticing in themselves what sorts of situations provoke that, get better at noticing when it's happening, and then have a little go-to technique which involves them focusing on something for a moment and then bringing themselves back, often their breath. I've got a client who has a pen and she takes a pen and she just turns it round a few times. And then she brings herself back. These tiny, tiny moments. Of course, you don't see quite the lasting changes in the brain that you do with really intensive mindfulness training, but it really starts to make a difference. So I think it's really uplifting and optimistic, the findings there. Great. Thank you very much. That's really, really interesting. Really tangible as well. I feel I can go away and use it straight away. Fantastic. (laughs) I just have have a bit of a conflict in my head. Um, I thought the study was really interesting about the gorilla and the radiologist's and this idea of inattentional blindness and not seeing things that are right in front of you. But at the same time, there's this idea of salience and disrupting people with something that is unusual in that context. And I was just wondering whether you could explain a little bit about how they work together. Hmm. Yeah. It is, I mean, it is one of those... So there's all of, this, um, all of this material out there on how do you nudge other people? How do, you, how, you, how do you make them do what you want to do? And then when you're making choices and decisions, you have to turn the advice the other way around and say, OK, how do you make sure that you're not being swayed? <laughs> by what's around you. So, yes, so in, in, in um, part four of the book, it's on thinking, and it's about overcoming biases and how do you quickly de-bias yourself when you know that you're making an important decision. In part five of the book, I go back and say, you know that stuff about de-biasing? Right, now, <laughs> this is how you actually make your messages more powerful, how you're more likely to get through to people. So I think it can help you both ways, uh, is the answer. Thank you. There was a question over here in the corner. How would you go about advising our health minister, Mr. Hunt, to improve his uh, intelligence? To improve his what, sorry? Improve his intelligence. Improve his intelligence. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I like, to, I like to think that my work focuses on what's applicable to everybody. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I mean... I think that when, when we're under pressure, it's very difficult for us to think clearly. That goes for anyone in any role. You know, whenever you are freaking out about something, or even when you're faced with something like I was with the, with the coaching career decision, just where the answer just simply isn't obvious, it is a challenge to make sure that you're, you're thinking as clearly as you can, because your brain will so quickly get uptight. So... All of the techniques that, uh, that have been shown to, shown to help everybody, I've tried to do my best to capture. One of them is absolutely this, getting in, this positive task framing. Another one is chunking the issue. Your brain only has a certain amount of ability to process 
It can only do one thing at a time. It can only hold three or four things in mind at once. Working memory is very small. So if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by, overwhelmed by a task, breaking it down into its constituent chunks so the only focusing on one bit at a time is a very good way of making it feel a lot more manageable. So I guess a couple of those things might help. I don't know. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, very useful immediately. Um, a lot of what you've been talking about, Caroline, has been kind of at the individual level. Yeah. I'm interested if you've been working with this with executive teams, other groups, if yeah. you could share any experiences or what you've learned in that context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that these things often, I mean, really to your point, you know, these things often become more powerful when you're not the only one doing them. You can definitely get a big step up in just doing these things for yourself, but my goodness, if it becomes a team norm, of course it's incredibly useful. There's... Um, I was just thinking about a team that I worked with, and I had taught the, a brain-friendly feedback technique. And the idea was, how can you give feedback without putting someone on the defensive? It's sort of almost the perfect way of putting someone on the defensive, isn't it? You know, mm. I've got some feedback for you. You know, think, oh. And immediately, they've gone slightly into defensive mode, which means they're not really processing what you're saying to them. What on earth can you do about that? So the more that you can... <coughs> Truly lead with the things that you like and, be, and not just give it a gloss because our brain is so tuned to look for threats that if you simply say, that was really good and then here are these things that you could do differently, the attention goes straight to the things that you can do differently. So being as clear as you can about this is what I liked about what you did and really go into some specificity and some detail and this is what would make me like it even more. So I taught this technique to a guy I was coaching, but he was working with a team, and we used it in, um, in a board meeting. We introduced it as a way of having the conversation. And it was remarkable how it transformed the tenor of the conversation, because their issue was that they had a very polite culture, and so they were doing a lot of back chat in the corridors, but not actually raising issues with themselves. So suddenly to have a safe way of talking to each other that wasn't going to put people on the defensive... And some a while later, I actually heard the CEO of this organization using the phrase in an interview. So I think that I think these things can stick and they can spread. Thank you, Caroline, for a great talk. Uh, so you uh, described the general attitude of your book as realistic optimism, mm -hmm. which entails that uh, there are many things we cannot control. And I just wanted to ask, uh, do you have any thoughts on... Uh, what our relationship to the things that are out of our control can be. I think that if we are more adept at thinking about the things that we can control, it's easier to accept the things that we don't control. You know, it's when everything feels like it's happening to us that it feels difficult. There's lots of research that suggests... Um, that when people are dealing with really, truly awful situations like earthquakes and wars, focusing on the few things that they do control or that they do know, which might be... There's a story in the book, actually, a woman called Jackie, who was a PR officer for a college um, when the awful earthquakes happened in New Zealand a while back. And what she did was she focused on what she knew from previous experience that was going to help her with this very difficult situation, the college being at the epicentre and the world's press descending on her. And she was a PR officer for the college. And 
Everything was uncertain. They didn't even know what the death toll was at that point. They didn't have electricity or running water. Focusing on what she knew from what she'd experienced previously. Focusing on what she decided her attitude could be. It, she says it made all the difference to her ability to navigate all of the things which were manifestly outside her control. And that's also, as I say, what, what, uh, what evidence suggests, is small amount of autonomy and control, doesn't ha- does, it doesn't have to be huge in order to make us feel better able to cope with everything else. Great. Um, so that sort of brings us to the end. Um, you started by telling us about some bad days. I have to confess that one of my colleagues asked me to ask you this. But so oh, yeah. can you tell us about a really good day of yours? This is a pretty good day. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on this book for four, four years and four months, Excellent. and now yeah. it's out today, yeah. and I'm yeah. in front of you. I mean, my goodness, yeah. honestly. Excellent. Thank so you. So on that note, um, <laughs> on that note um, Caroline's book, which is out today, is on sale outside, and I know she's happy to sign copies um, and answer any final questions anyone has. Um, but finally, do join me in thanking our terrific speaker, Caroline Webb. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.